Next week, we will be celebrating Ladba Omer. Ladba Omer is a very unique, interesting day in the Jewish calendar. Of course, we know it's the day that marks the end of the plague that decimated, that destroyed the students of Rabbi Tiva. It's also the yard site, sometimes called the Hilula, of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, incidentally, also a student of Rabbi Tiva. And Allah tells us that we're supposed to celebrate a little bit on this day, because it marks the Hilula of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. There's all kinds of interesting customs. Some of them are quite unusual. Some are accustomed to actually play with a bow and arrow. Did you know that? On this day, we make these big bonfires. On normal years, of course, this is not a normal year. On normal years, around half a million people descend, or maybe ascend, to the mountain of Meron, where Rabbi Shomrechai is buried as a pilgrimage to his burial spot to celebrate his Hilula. In fact, of course, we know there's an ancient custom going back to the times of the Rizal for young children to get their first haircut on this day at that auspicious site. And the question I want to explore today is, why do we make such a big deal about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and not his other illustrious contemporaries? You know, Rabbi Akiva, if I were to ask most people when he passed, most people don't know when he passed. After all, he was Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai's teacher, and we don't celebrate his Hilula. What about Hillel, the founder of the dynasty of the Nesim? What about Rabbi Yehuda Anasi, Rabbi Judah the Prince, the architect of the Mishnah, Rabbi Yochanan Ben-Zakai? There's a lot of great Tanoim, sages from the Mishnahic era, whose yard sites, most of us don't even know when they are, and we don't celebrate this. Why was Rabbi Shemrei why was Rashbi singled out that we celebrate his Hilula, and there's this whole hullabaloo about it. What is unique about him, and why is his yard site celebrated so intensely? So I want to suggest an approach today. Of course, when we're talking about the sages of the Mishnah, we acknowledge that they're beyond us. They're like angels, like veritable angels. There's stories, many stories of the, about them, resuscitating the dead, splitting the sea like Moshe and Yehoshua and Joshua. They're above us. They're beyond us. We really can connect to them in a tangible way. But I want to suggest that there's something special about Rabbi Shim, about Rabbi Shim Yechai, and how he related to us that created this very intimate, very close connection that we have with him and that lives on until this very day. Rabbi Shim Yechai, as we shall see, he was the one who always believed in us. Even when no one else did, Rabbi Shemrei was on our side. He fought for us. He was our advocate. He was our ally. And by the way, he pledged to continue fighting for us in front of the Almighty until this very day. He is someone, his story reminds us of what our potential is, of what we can accomplish, of our most aspirational greatness. He's the one who encourages us to never give up. If you learn about a story, he emerges at a time when our nation was near a spiritual and physical nadir. Of course, the base of Middash, the temples destroyed. Jewish communities all over Israel are slaughtered. And the harsh Roman rule imposes all kinds of restrictions against Judaism, against Jewish life, and against Jewish communities. Of course, they kick all the Jews out of Jerusalem, out of Yerushalayim. They build a temple for the pagan god Jupiter on top 
Temple Mount, where the base of Midrash stood, is now a shrine to Avodah Zarah. They disallow Jews from entering Yerushalayim. And at various times, the rabbis have to disband. They're fearing assassination. And of course, things really intensify in about the 120s or 130s. Hadrian, the emperor Hadrian, he imposes all kinds of brutal restrictions against Jewish life. The laws of Nida can no longer be observed. Teaching of Torah is banned on pain of death. Shabbos is disallowed. Brismila is disallowed. In fact, they would force the people who did have a brismila, have circumcision, to undo it. They said whoever gives a child a brismila, both mother and child are going to be chucked off a cliff. This is the world in which Rabbi Shumbaychai emerges. And of course, the nation has been endowed with some of the greatest, brightest sages. Of course, foremost among them is Rabbi Akiva. He has a student body of 24,000 students. The future maybe looks quite promising despite all this Roman aggression. But things go south. There is the Bar Kokhba Rebellion. It's time to the year 132 to 135. There is a bloody and horrible war. And initially, it's somewhat successful. The Jews manage to recapture Yerushalayim. They start rebuilding the temple. But the revolt is crushed. Jerusalem is recaptured by the Romans. The forces of Bar Kokhba, they fortify themselves in the city of Betar. Eventually, the fortress is betrayed. And there is mass slaughter. By the way, Jewish sources and Roman sources peg the number of deaths at close to a million souls. The way the Talmud describes it is that there were such rivers of blood cascading throughout the land that the Gentile farmers did not need to fertilize their farms for seven years. And after this rebellion is crushed, there is what's known as the Shmad of Hadrian. And if we learn Jewish history, we'll, we'll discover that the Holocaust was actually not the first Holocaust. The first Holocaust happened right then, around the year 135-136, where Jews are being slaughtered everywhere and totally indiscriminately. And the Romans, of course, intensify it by not only destroying Jewish communities, but destroying the symbol of Jewish greatness. They actually take Temple Mount. We know Temple Mount, Harabais, was the tallest mountain near Shalayim. You go there today, you see it's not so tall. And the reason why is that Sion Sada Tikharesh, they plowed the mountain. They, they forced Jews to engage in slave labor to actually lower the mountain, some estimates, by about a thousand feet. They execute all the rabbis. They make an edict. If you give smicha or you receive smicha, you're going to be slaughtered. And by the way, the city in which smicha is conferred the entire city is going to be savagely, macabrely, brutally destroyed. This is the conditions. This is the world that Rabbi Shemichai emerges in. And to make things worse, during this time, a plague erupts and all 24,000 students of Rabbi Kiva, the creme de la creme, the cream of the crop, the bright future of the Jewish people, they all die in a plague during the time spanning between Pesach and Shavuos, in the words of the Talmud, the land became desolate. And you could argue that this is maybe the shakiest time in Jewish history. Our nation, the chosen nation, the people of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Will this dream endure? Will the nation ever be restored to prominence? 
will Torah have any continuity? You have to remember, at this time, the Mishnah is not written down. There's no canon of Torah Shabbat oral Torah. If it's forgotten, if there is a lapse, if there is a generation where there is no Torah being taught, that's it. The Jewish experiment is over. But something dramatic happens. The nation rebuilds itself. Rabbi Tiva goes south, finds five students. One of them, of course, is Rabbi Shimon. And once again, the desert blooms. And 50 years later, what happens? The nation undertakes the most monumental project in human history, the writing of the Mishnah, the codification of oral Torah. And what do you have? A nation left for dead rises again with supreme vigor. The person that most symbolizes this turnaround is Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And I want to read a story and see what he did and what he represented and how he inspires us until this day. So maybe the most famous story about him is told in the Talmud book of Shabbos, page 33b. There was a conversation between three of the sages, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, and Rabbi Shimon, and they're discussing their Roman overlords. And Rabbi Yehuda says, listen, you know, these people do good things. They make marketplaces and bridges and bathhouses. They're not that bad. They're pretty good, actually. Rabbi Yossi is quiet. And Rabbi Shimon is there, and he rips into them. He says everything they did, there's no altruism in it. It's all for their own personal benefit. They made marketplaces to establish houses of ill repute. They made bathhouses to have physical pleasure, and they made bridges to collect taxes, to collect tolls. Eventually, this conversation becomes uh, uh, reaches the Romans, and they declare, Rabbi Uda, who praised the Romans, he's going to be promoted. Rabbi Yossi was quiet, so he's going to be exiled. Rabbi Shemar Yechai, he criticized the Romans, and he's going to be killed. And we know the story. He ends up in a cave with his son. They're there for 13 years. The miraculous carob tree sprouts out outside of the cave. A stream of water is arranged for them. And for 13 years, they live in isolation, hiding from the Romans. And of course, according to Jewish tradition, Elio and Avi, Elijah the prophet comes and teaches all the Torah of Kabbalah to Rabbi Shimon and his son during these fortuitous, propitious 13 years. And after things settle down, the Romans, you know, there's a change in leadership, and he emerges from his cave. I think if we examine this story, we discover a little bit about Rabbi Shimon's character. The Romans are not known for their kindness. And the prudent thing would be to be maybe a little bit deferential to the rulers of the land, to play nice. And we see Rabbi Shimon is fundamentally incompatible with any evil. It cannot exist in his presence. He's not willing to compromise at all. He's not going to kowtow to the Romans. He's not going to yield an inch. He has a certain tenacity and sheer determination to shoot for the stars. He says, we're going to rebuild our nation, not as a nation that's cowering in fear from the Romans, not in any mediocre fashion, but in the resplendent fashion fitting our people and our pedigree. We're not going to bow down to these heathen pagans. We have the Almighty on our sides. There's no need to sugarcoat the message about the Romans. And this aspirational mindset is manifested 
all over his teachings. For example, the Talmud also on Shabbos, page 138, the Talmud's talking about whether Torah will be forgotten. So comes along Rav, one of the great sages of the Talmud. Asida Torah shetishtatach Israel, And he brings a Pasuk, brings a verse. The Torah will be forgotten, guaranteed. Comes along the Rabbanon, the Rabbanon, yes! They know for sure, Asida Torah shetishtatach Israel. Things look really bad in the future. Things look grim. Torah's going to be forgotten. Comes along Rabbi Shimon Bayechai. No. Chas v'shalom. It's not going to happen. Heaven forbid the Torah will be forgotten. Torah will never be forgotten from the Jewish people. Again, we see Rav, the Rabbonon. They're right. They examine the world. They examine the situation. They say all the ingredients are in place for Torah to be forgotten. That wasn't an exaggeration. But comes Lord Shemba and says, no. We're going to endure. Things, yes, they look grim. We are the nation of the Almighty. We have a very bright future. Things are going to work out. Torah is not going to be forgotten. Dream big. Recognize who you are, who you came from, where you came from. Yes, things are bad, but so what? Rabbi Shimon says, sees us in the best of light. And maybe the second most famous story about, or Talmudic anecdote about Rabbi Shimon Bar-Chai is found in the book of Brachos. And the Talmud's dealing with the question, how much does someone work and how much should they study Torah? And comes along Rabbi Shmuel and says, well, you have to try to balance. You have to try to harmonize the two. You have to study, but you also have to work. Because what are you going to do? That's what Rabbi Shmuel says. Very prudent. Comes along Rabbi Shimon and makes the following declaration. Someone's going to plow at the time of plowing. Someone's going to plant and harvest and winnow and do all the agricultural activities throughout the year. Torah, matehela. What's going to be with Torah. Rather, his solution is, just study Torah, and the Almighty will take care of you. And again, you think about it, what's the prudent thing to do? We have manifold responsibilities with your family. We have to have a livelihood. We have to study Torah. So it makes sense to say, okay, let's, fi- let's find a way to harmonize them. And Rabbi Shimon dismisses this argument. What's going to be with Torah? He doesn't even address it. He views us, even when things are bad, he views us as if we're a nation at our zenith. The Almighty is with us. We study Torah. We're in good shape. And if you think about it, he's right. Of course, we know for 40 years, Jewish people were in the wilderness. They're in the desert. And what do they have? They have the man. They have the manna. The Almighty parachutes food for them, every Jew, to their doorstep each morning. Rabbi Shimon is telling us, yes, things are bad. Yes, things don't look that good, but it's never too late for us to be on that level of the nation in the wilderness that we get the man. If we commit ourselves to him, to the Almighty, he will reciprocate. We could still be the people that are taken care directly by God. What about the Romans? The Romans are like flies. And just like Yehoshua said about the Canaanim, we'll carve them up like bread. By the way, when did the month start falling? When did the manna start falling? So Talmud tells us that they ate the charara, they ate the matzah that they took out of Egypt for a month. So they left the 15th of Nisan, 15th of Er. They were still eating matzah. For the next three days, there was no food. And then on the 18th day of Er, known to us as Lagba Omer, that's when the month started falling. 
What this is telling us is, this is the day of Rabbi Shomer Chai. This is the day that heralds a nation that the Almighty is on their side and the Almighty is taking care of them. And, and his message is that we could still aspire to be that great nation. And you know what? Today, we may think, you know, we're sinners. We're not worthy. We're hopeless. We are doomed. And again, Rabbi Shem Rechai rebuts that argument. He says, no. We're a mamlechas kadosh. We're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. We're the chosen people. We can make the Jewish people great again. He was a believer in us. He was forever bullish on the Jewish people. Talmud tells us that there is a halacha called a ben sorer umore, wayward and rebellious son. This is a person, a child, an adolescent, who is heading in a very bad path. And the halacha is that the Torah could forecast his future behavior, and it knows for sure he's going to become a murderer, he's going to become a thief, and therefore he is executed at the tender age of 13. Comes Logo Roshim Baruchai. And this is from the Talmud and Senate from page 71a. Ben Sora Umore Lohaya. This case never happened. Velo Asid and never will happen. So why is it written? Draw for Kabaschar. Study it for the reward, but it's not practical. Talmud's telling us is that there's something called a Ben Sora Umore. This is a child who is irredeemable. They are on a trajectory, a path that there's no hope for it ever coming back to the correct path. Comes along Rabbi Shem Baruchai and says, even someone like that, even someone like that's not irredeemable. It's inconceivable to be told that there's a Jew. No matter how low they may fall, there is no way to guarantee that they're going to be bound to continue in their sinful ways. He's the greatest believer in the Jewish people, even at their lows. But he didn't only believe in us. He fought for us. He is our advocate. Talmud tells us, this is from Sukkah, page 45b, that Rosh Hashanah made a declaration. I am going to absolve the entire world's sins from the day I was born until today. All those years, all the sins of the whole world, I got it. I'm going to cover it for you. And there's many, many stories about this. I'm going to give you a few sampling of how he takes one for the team. He says, I got it. I'm going to cover it. I'm going to get rid of the decrees. I'm going to ensure that the Jewish people have a clean slate. So, for example, Talmud Book of Elah 17a tells that there was a decree, a Roman decree, which, of course, is fitting for the times, that decreed Jewish people keep Shabbos. They're executed. They circumcise their children, give a bris meal, they're executed. And the laws of Nida may not be observed. And the Talmud says that how, you know, how, how they try to undo, revoke that horrific decree. So there's one of the sages, his name was Rabbi Reuven ben Istrubili, and he disguises himself as a Roman, and he tries to convince them that it's, it's a bad idea. Why? Because we want them to be poor, right? We want our enemies, the Jews, to be poor. Well, let them take off a weekday, a work day on Shabbat, and they'll be poorer. And we want them to be weak, right? Physically weak. Okay, let them circumcise their kid. Let them weaken their children. And we want them to not have so many children. We want them to not procreate as uh, aggressively. And therefore, let them take some time off and keep the laws of Nida. That was his plan. And the Romans bought it. 
and temporarily they suspended these decrees. But then they got wind of it and they realized that he was a Trojan horse. He was a fifth column. He was a Jew impersonating a Roman and they reinstituted the decrees. And the rabbis convene a council and they say, what are we going to do? We have this horrific crippling decree. We need to send someone to Rome to go annul the decree. Who should go? So, of course, everyone looks exactly at Rishon Baruch and says, he has some history. He has ability. He is well taught in the ways of miracles. We're going to send him. So he heads off to Rome. And on the way, he gets a visitor. Says the Talmud, who is this visitor? It's a demon. The demon, whatever that is, kind of this hybrid human angel thing. The demon says, I want to help you. So Rishon hears this and starts crying. He's like, Abraham's maid's maidservant, Hagar, when she needs help, she gets a real angel. And all I have is this pathetic demon to help me. Starts crying. Anyhow, demon says, okay, I'm going to help you. He flies ahead to Rome and he embeds himself. By the way, this is the Talmud. This is not the Zohar. This is the Talmud. This demon flies to Rome and embeds himself into the daughter of the Caesar and makes her go crazy and scream at the top of her lungs. I need Rabbi Shimon, Rabbi Shimon. And she's, she's, contorted in pain, going crazy, give me Rabbi Shimon. So the whole city, the whole town was looking for Rabbi Shimon, and he walks into the city, and he's like, oh, here I am. So he walks in to the palace, and he speaks to the demon, says, okay, your time's up, you've done your job, come out. And like that, the girl's been healed. It's a miracle. They can't believe what, what happened. And they say, whatever you want, it's all yours. Come to the storehouses, take whatever gold, silver, whatever you want, it's all yours. They bring him there to the uh, to the coffers of Rome, and he goes through the documents. It's all I want is this document, the document that had the decree. They say, that's all you want? Sure, take it, it's yours. He rips it up, and he heads home. Incidentally, the Talmud says that while he was there, he saw some of the loot that the Romans had taken from the temple from Beis HaMiddash. This is Rabbi Shimon. He's someone who's saying, I'm going to go into the lion's den. I'm going to endanger myself to go save the Jewish people. And there's many stories like that. And one of them, perhaps it's topical for our times. The Midrash tells us that he entered the city of Lod and there was a plague that was ravaging the city. And he encircled the city and all he sees are piles and piles of corpses. And he makes a declaration he says, it's not possible that I'm here and there's a plague here. It's not possible. And instantly, there was a Baskol, a prophetic booming voice that says, okay, all the angels that are in charge of the plague, your time's up. You're beckoned back home and the plague ended. And the Talmud tells that some of his colleagues, some of his contemporaries were discussing this story. And Rabbi Meir, one of the other students of Rabbi Kiva, the five who survived, Rabbi Meir says, look at this, when Moshe and Aaron, when they want to stop a plague in Parshas Korach, what do they need to do? They have to take the Ketoros. They have to do something to stop the plague. And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai is even greater to a certain extent than Moshe at stopping plagues. All he does is speaks. All he does is make declarations. And the plague is eradicated. Another story. We say in Ashrei, Ritzon Yereyav Ya'aseh. The Almighty will do, will perform the will of those who fear Him. And we're told in the sources that the greatest exemplar of that is Rosh Hashanah Bar Yochai. 
And the story is told, Rav Shemrechai was traveling with his son, and they see great darkness enveloping the world. And they're trying to figure out, what well, what is this darkness? And they find an angel, a huge angel, the size of a mountain. And there are 30 tongues of fire coming out of this angel's mouth. And they ask the angel, what are you doing? What's the plan? This seems pretty ominous. And he tells them, well, the Almighty is disappointed with the world. He wants to destroy it, and I'm the emissary. Why? Why is he disappointed? Because at a minimum, there's got to be 30 tzaddikim in the world. There's got to be 30 righteous people in the world. And there are insufficient tzaddikim, and I've been sent to go destroy the world. So what does Rabbi Shemichai do? He says to him, go back to the Almighty and tell him that Rabbi Shemichai sent you away. And he goes back to the Almighty. The Almighty says, no, go back. And he goes back and Rabbi Shemichai tells him, you should know that if you don't go back, I'm going to force you to never come back, never come back. And he engages with him in this whole back and forth, this whole argument. He says to him, well, if, there's not, if there aren't 30, then maybe 20 will suffice. If there aren't 20, maybe 10 will suffice. And if there's no 10, well, maybe two would be enough, me and my son. And he quotes a verse to support that. that you need two witnesses. And if there's two witnesses to testify to God's dominion and supremacy, that's enough. And finally, if it's just me alone. I'm going to spare the whole world. And indeed, this angel with its tail between its legs heads back, heads back to the Almighty. And again, a prophetic voice announces, Rabbi Shimon, you are praiseworthy. The Almighty makes a decree and you annul it. The Almighty will do, will abide by the will of those who fear him. Many stories to this Effect. And by the way, I want to add that this is not only him fighting for us in this world. The Midrash tells us that he's going to ensure that none of the Jews end up in a post-mortem Gehenna. He is our friend. He's our advocate. He's our lawyer. He's always believing in us. He's always fighting for us. He's always interceding on our behalf. And we have Lad Omer. Lad Omer is his day. And the Zohar tells us that this is the day that he taught all of the Torah of Kabbalah to his students. And of course, the Torah of Kabbalah is vast. How did he do it all in one day? And the answer is, this is what the Zohar says. On that day, the sun did not set until he was finished teaching it all. And this is the day that he told his students, I want you to celebrate it. And as we know, there's a custom to light a, a yardside candle, a ner neshama, on the day that someone passes. But of course, the souls come in different varieties and stripes. And the soul of Rabbi Shemachai was so vast and powerful, the only way to actually light a proper candle for that is to make a huge bonfire. This is the day that marks the turnaround. Rabbi Akiva's students were passing, and this is the day that it stopped. And this is the day that Rabbi Shimon made his, so to speak, crossover to heaven, but he's still there fighting for us. We ask the question, why is Rabbi Shimon Ben Yochai, Bar Yochai, why is he different than all the sages? This is the answer. He most represents the dramatic turnaround that happened. The land was desolate. Torah was imperiled. And with Rabbi Shimon, the land bloomed again. 
He inspired us when we're down, when things looked pretty hopeless. He's the sage, above all, that springs hope in a time of pain, of suffering, of tragedy. He showed us what it's like to rebuild Torah. What's the attitude? Is it an attitude of mediocrity? Oh, no. We're not willing to settle for mediocrity. He's not going to allow us to falter. He's going to will us to success. He believed in us. He believes in our destiny. He believes in our greatness. He reminds us that the Almighty is eternally on our side. And he represents Torah, rebuilding the Jewish community in the face of what could have been tremendous destruction. Uncompromising, unflinching, willing to stare down persecution and oppression. He did it for us. And he's fighting for us. And he continues to fight for us. And specifically, our sages tell us, this is a powerful idea. Just as in his lifetime, he was the advocate for the Jewish people. Every year, on his day, Alag Ba'omer, Rabbi Shem has an audience before God. And once again, he advocates for us to nullify all the decrees, to stand up for us, to defend us in front of the Almighty. That's the power of the day, to connect with Rabbi Shem and all that he represents to believe in ourselves, to never give up hope, and certainly to never settle for mediocrity. And you know what? He was an angel, like all the sages were. But it's interesting that we call him Bar Yochai. There's a famous song, Bar Yochai, the son of Yochai. The message is, there was a point in time when this veritable angel was just Bar Yochai, he was the son of Yochai. At some juncture in his life, he was known as the boy of Yochai. He wasn't that great. And us too, we're small people. And we look at Rishon Yochai and all the miracles. And, of course, we're nothing like that. But he is reminding us, he was once also simple and underdeveloped like we are. And on this day, we could connect to him and we could expand our vistas. We could expand our ambitions of what we are and what we could be. May we all merit to be elevated by the luminous light of Rabbi Shem Rechai. And on this day, on his day, Allah Ba'omer, let us absorb his messages and his teachings.